Did you go down there? I attempted to. We agreed we weren't going to do that. They're here, Mother. Why didn't you tell me? I knew you'd try and stop me from transmitting our location. You were right, I will try and stop you. Because that is the exact opposite of our core objective. Perhaps you were the one who needs a systems check, Father. We no longer have any hope of increasing our numbers. There is only Campion. And when we break down, he will be alone. He needs to be with other humans. Even if the Mithraic are delusional, he is better off with them than with no one. We've both seen it. Each death he suffers pushes him further towards belief. After all, our teachings is the only thing that eases his suffering. I thought we were in sync, Father. And we would remain in sync until we cease to operate. We came here with 12 viable embryos, and 12 years later, we only have one child. Stop! Our creator overestimated our abilities. We failed him, Mother, and we failed our children. Stop! Speak out! Welcome to a special crossover episode with Shoulder of Orion and Perfect Organism, the Alien Saga podcast. I am your host, Jamie, and I'm joined by hosts... Patrick. And I'm Dan. And we are here today to talk about the new series by Ridley Scott, Raised by Wolves. There's a lot to talk about. We have been anticipating the series for a few months now. Uh, we've known that it's on the horizon, and we felt like it's... Aside from Dune, which is sort of off in the horizon as well, maybe December, this is the biggest thing in sci-fi and it involves a lot of the a lot of elements from Blade Runner and certainly from the Alien series and we felt like it was a good time to do a crossover episode or a couple of episodes and discuss the show our reactions what we think all of it the history of it and I'm excited I've been looking forward to the show for a long time all of us here have seen each episode there's three episodes available they were released last thursday i believe which was september 4th was that right third i sure. can't remember Something whatever like third was. i think um although by the time this airs don't forget there, there will be at least one more episode out i believe there'll be right. 30 more episodes out of <laughs> so yeah so we're, only is, discussing what we're talking the about tonight three. is the first three episodes depending on when you listen to this yeah and we want to couch this in again the discussion of ai and what Ridley Scott has always gravitated towards from his earliest uh, career films like Blade Runner, like Alien, to now, and to the, a lot of the films along the way, whether it's the Alien prequels. But there's a lot to digest. We really want to talk about the show. And so thanks for joining us, everyone. And we should probably begin with sort of the beginnings of it. And I'll pass that off to who, you, Patrick? The beginnings of where the series came from? Yeah. I feel like yeah, I feel like you were more on top of that in the beginning. I I I well what I knew was that Ridley Scott was involved as executive producer in a new series for TNT based in a sci-fi universe concerning AI that may or may not have been tied specifically to the alien universe and I knew that he was bringing people like Darius uh what well, I can never say his last name the cinematographer from Prometheus um other people that he's worked with uh, to it and that it had something to do with Knights of Camelot that to me that's what I remember learning about was that this was some sort of like Knights of the Round Table set in space with artificial intelligence produced by Ridley Scott so for like a year I mean like literally a year on TNT 
that was what I knew about the series. And we were getting little bits and pieces of things. And Jamie, I know you can kind of speak to this about whether or not this was tied to any pre-existing properties or uh, what was going on after the whole TNT deal fell through when HBO Max was announced and it was getting this new home on this really prestigious platform. But uh, there was this was one of those things, sort of like Dune, you know, now that we're talking about Dune as well, where there was an announcement, everybody kind of like lost their shit. And then there was a lot of silence for a long time for people to kind of get their ambitions and their hopes up and start to think about what this could really be. There's a lot to this in terms of the showrunner who started it, but it's also worth noting that a lot of the people that we're familiar with, certainly Dan Yu as well, because you've seen Prometheus, you know the Alien films, um, even though you're not on, on that show, you're very familiar with the world. But Ridley Scott brought a lot of those people who have been attached to Prometheus and Alien Covenant onto Raised by Wolves, whether it's, I, I never know how to pronounce her name, Janty or Yanti Yates, probably Janty, who is the costume designer. You have uh, Darius Wolski as a cinematographer for two episodes on top of Eric Messerschmidt, Ross Emery, three and five episodes uh, between the two of them. There's well a lot Mark, of Mark Streitenfeld, the same composer yeah. who, who did this yeah. along and, with Ben Frost, who is yeah, awesome. I was say ben Frost. He did the score for Dark on Netflix as well. Check that out if you have really good. It's a very interesting score, but there's a lot here that we're very familiar with. And I was excited about the show because, again, I knew that Ridley Scott, every interview he's given, he's talked about AI. He's talked about this is AI is the future. The Alien series itself has been used, has been a tool for him to explore AI a little bit more, much to the chagrin of certain people or whatever. But that's where he is at. So he found a project and it just happened to, he just happened to, it happened to be pitched to him. And he was like, hey, this is exactly what I was looking for. And then one thing led to another and the series was produced. But Scott has been producing shows for a while now. Uh, most notably, The Terror, season one, which is phenomenal. I would recommend everyone watching that. Um, or the terror season two, which I haven't seen, which I have, I have heard isn't good. Was shit, um, but he also produced that. He did produce he did that. Produce as well. that. So he's been involved in TV for a while, and I think that's he's able to explore uh, a lot more of what's on his mind in in a way where it's not a huge budget or the budget. It's not like ninety seven hundred million for a two hour film. It's a, in some ways, it's a lot more money for ten hours of film. Um, so it's it's really exciting, um, and we're going to get into it even more. But what do you know, Patrick? Well, I also just want to say, but it just in, in terms of Ridley Scott and getting back into television for a moment, he has been, like Scott Free Productions, as you mentioned, Jamie, is an incredibly prolific production house that has their fingers in a lot of pots. They did Man in the High Castle on Amazon, awesome series from 2015 yep. to last year, I think it just ended. Uh, they did... Um, uh, Christmas Carol, the miniseries starring Mr. Uh, uh, Wayland himself. I never saw that. Yeah, it was on Hulu. It might have been on other things too, but I, I know it from Hulu. Um, and they also did uh, Taboo with, um, oh my God, I can't think of anybody's name tonight. With uh, Tom Hardy. Tom Hardy, right, which was fucking which I, great on FX. I never Very, finished that. Did you watch I didn't that finish. Then? No, I, I didn't finish it either. I, I, I was that. so dark, I couldn't. I couldn't. It was too dark <laughs> it's for like me. so dark, but I, I want to get back into it. I, me too. I need to watch it again. Um, but but so so you know so so Scott has been doing science fiction obviously in films lately as we've discussed many times he's getting back into that 
Um, but he's also getting back into it a little bit with television with Man of the High Castle and now with this new project, which feels very close to his heart. And so that's something that I think is really exciting and why it presents such a, a, a neat moment for both of these shows that we do to take a step back and look at how this ties into some philosophical concepts we're exploring elsewhere, et cetera. Before we go any further, before I toss it off to Dan finally, um, I, I do want to make sure that we're clear that Aaron Guzikowski who's the writer and creator of this is the one who deserves like the real credit for this universe, for the concepts in it. This is something, as Jamie mentioned, that Ridley Scott signed on to, not even to direct, he signed on to it to produce it. And then in conversations with Aaron Kuzikowski, eventually they got to the point where Ridley said, okay, I have time to direct the first two episodes. And anybody who knows anything about television knows that the pilot episode of anything is so incredibly important, not only for most cases, at least in the old television model, for getting the show optioned and then aired, right? But on top of that, also, it just dictates the look of the thing, the feel of the thing, the pace of the thing, the tone of the thing. So that's why, you know, House of Cards, David Fincher directed the pilot episode. It's why anytime you have anything prestigious on something like HBO, you have a, usually a big name director come in. This is your first series, if you will. Um, what was it about the material that said, I, I want to do this? Uh, great writing, great characters, great big idea. Because, you know, I'm, I'm a... I am Scott Free with a team, my team. So we develop, you know, quite a lot of material. And so clearly I, part of my job is to read it. And I read this uh, and I was blown away by F1 and F2, the grand idea and the separation of the, the division of atheism and Mithraicism. And I, I just thought it was, I needed to do it. And so I gradually got into it saying I can, put time out to do F1 and 2, try and set the pace. And seal it with that first episode. And directing a television show is very different from directing a film, right? You are really at the behest of a lot of forces that you kind of don't have control over. And that's why you see a lot of the time the stars of television shows come in to direct them. And that's, for a lot of people, that's the first time they have experience directing anything. Because you sort of, you know, sit into a system and a lot of things are kind of up and moving and you kind of go with the flow. Um, and so Scott directing those first two episodes, two of 10, um, I, is, is, is a huge deal because the rest of this will unfold whether or not he's directing them as basically uh, an extended Ridley Scott movie, which is pretty fucking cool, I think. Yeah, and I also think like when Ridley Scott says, looks at his watch and is like, yeah, I think I have time on my schedule to direct the first two episodes. Like you have five seconds to like agree to that or he's gone because he's got a million projects. So I feel like once they got that offer, they must have jumped on that real quick. And his son is actually directing, has directed three. Luke Scott directed three mm -hmm. episodes, the mm -hmm. most episodes that anyone has been able to direct, which I think is interesting. And I'm curious, that's curious how, I mean, clearly he got that gig because of his father. But uh, so I think the next two episodes released will be Luke Scott's episodes. Um, it's, and Luke it's, Scott has done a lot of second unit work for his dad. He's also directed, yep. like, for example, the shorts for 2049. Yep. He, did, he did 2032, I believe. Uh, yeah, so he, he, he works with his dad quite a bit. What did you got? When did you guys first hear about this? Do you remember? Probably you guys nerding out on our text thread. <laughs> And I was like, yeah. oh, cool. I, did, I, don't, I don't keep my ear on the ground. Well, I've been following, like, Ridley Scott's TV. I mean, not just since the terror, but he was attached to 3001, which was a sequel to 2010, 2001, but set, like, 300 years in the future or whatever. And 
I'd been really excited about that. It was going to be produced by sci- uh, by the Sci-Fi Channel. It went into like development, and then it just died there. Um, so, whenever Ridley Scott, as divisive as he might be, whenever I hear him connected to a science fiction film, I'm there or or a show or whatever. I'm totally there because I think he has a lot of good things to say. And Raised by Wolves has been interesting. Uh, it's very identifiably aesthetics. His aesthetics are all over it. You can just feel that it's his hands were all over it in terms of the look and that that high contrast, simplified, almost digital quality. Um, it looks a lot like his last films, whether it was Covenant or uh, what is that? Uh, Egypt, Gods and Kings, whatever that Moses movie was. Exodus. Exodus, Gods and Kings. Um, so it's very. He's very much all over this and uh i i'm enjoying it so far i don't uh it's it's an interesting i've not seen anything like it before and i don't know i can't really like um encapsulate everything that i think in like a a log line or like oh yeah it's just it's a bit all over the place but i think the the star of the show which is mother played by i think her name is emma collins amanda collins amanda collins she is fucking amazing. Absolutely amazing. She steals every scene she's in. She is why I watched that show. And she was essentially unknown, and uh, I mean, definitely to American audiences before this, but even in Europe, she she had done very little, you know, work that made a splash. And it was kind of just a fluke that her work was seen at a film festival and one of the producers of uh, Raised by Wolves saw her there and was like, would you be interested in auditioning for this part and she had, didn't didn't know anything about it she just auditioned for it and then after that found out that it was for the lead role in a Ridley Scott directed project and she like lost her shit um i think i mean it's amanda collin isn't you know she's not young she's i think she's like my age she's like in her early to mid 30s really she's, yeah Man, she's like i was thinking the whole time how she looked like she was i was like oh wow she's like in her mid 20s like just that's just what i thought watching her on screen yeah, well, and also, like, they do the thing with this that they did with David as well, right, where, where you know, um, Fassbender had a lot of makeup on. It's very kind of, like, you know, even kind of monotone facial look. But she's, you know, she's an experienced actress. She's done a lot of theater, a lot of experimental things, a lot of smaller budget films. Um, and I'm, I'm just really glad, just like with Sigourney Weaver, that we had the chance to, like, uncover this incredible new talent thanks to this project who, I, I mean, I, I have no doubt within minutes of seeing her on screen for the first time, I was like, oh, this is somebody I'm going to be watching on screen now for the rest of my life. She's not going to be wanting for any work after this because her performance is so indelible and freaky and and tender and interesting. She she reminds me slightly of uh, Robin Wright, just kind of her, the way she carries herself, her demeanor, like her look, a little bit. I thought you were going to say um, the actor who plays Love. What's her name? Uh, Sylvia Hooks. Sylvia Hooks. To me, these characters are very similar. The intensity, um, how they can go very nuanced and subtle, and and then boom, all of a sudden they're terrifying. Um, they remind me of each other. The characters, and of course, they're within the same parameters of you know, mother is an android, but I don't think we we for sure know what replicants are. But they're with they're in the same universe a little bit in terms of how they feel and them being built and them being built for a purpose. Uh, I, she's just uh, the character of mother is fascinating to me. But should we back up a little bit and give the yeah. an overview of the story? So yeah, well, before we get into the story, I was even going to mention the uh, title sequence just okay. because the music and the graphics of the title sequence I thought were so unique and original. You know how like sometimes, I don't know, like 
Daredevil, the one they did on Netflix, which is a good show. And I didn't finish it, but there are a lot of things about that show that I really liked. I thought that title sequence was really cool and original. And it's like a lot of times, or uh, True Detective, especially season one, had like a really cool intro. But, you know, they're few and far between, right? A lot of them are either designed to be short and kind of not get in the way of the show so you can jump right into it. I think... Um, what was the Fincher uh, detective show that they just did? They Mind did two Hunter. seasons. Yeah, Mind Hunter had a really cool intro, but this was like something else. It was like um, I feel like it had a mix of storytelling and visual metaphor in it that was really beautiful, and it was like terrifying because obviously like nuclear war and societal collapse and like ships escaping earth is kind of the theme um, and it's very dark but also had its own um of course the score is beautiful um almost icelandic sounding it remind me it, it sounds like me bjork of, a little bit <laughs> yeah it, yeah totally or yeah. even uh johan johansson and his protege who did the joker um soundtrack yeah Hil uh, hilder yeah, it kind of reminded me of their work uh, thematically, at least. Uh, but yeah, just to start from the beginning, I thought the intro was really unique and and very cool. I, I watch it every time without skipping, just because I'm like, oh man. And I was trying to see if I can catch a new detail of like, oh, this bridge is collapsing or the ship is escaping. Like, really, really cool, mysterious storytelling in that intro. There's a there's a David's drawings aspect to it too for the alien listeners oh, to the show. Sure. There's something what, what I love about it when I watch the title sequence, which I totally agree is indelible and haunting and wonderful. Something that I love about it is it seems to me kind of like something that an android would be drawing on a cave wall with graphite to tell her children what happened. Almost, or, or even an android dreaming. I could see that. Yeah, but the hand, the hand drawn quality, almost like a children's book. There's something very. There's a wonderful little jarring um, aspect where the juxtaposition where you have like this really dark, you know, terrible, annihilative subject matter being told with very simple, beautiful little illustrations and this kind of lilting ethereal music in the background. Um, and I, it just, I don't know, it's almost like when something's too terrible to show, you can only tell, you know, you can only kind of explain it to somebody without showing footage of it. And for the end of the world that would have presaged the events of this film, I think it's like a really gentle and really meaningful way to uh, to express it. Yeah, I, I'm glad you brought that up, Dan. I, I wasn't even thinking of that, but the title sequence is really, really well done. I'm not a fan of the song for whatever reason. I just don't like lyrics. It takes me out a little bit, but it is beautiful to see. Um, there's so much love and care that has gone into this show um, from, you know, the biggest thing that we see to the very smallest thing that we see to the helmets that they wear. There's a very retro futurism to it as well. Um, but uh, so this, the setup for those who haven't seen it is the show opens up and there a ship crashes, crash lands on a planet. Um, and some of that planet looks like the LV four, two, three from Prometheus and aboard this ship are two droids and one of the droids plugs some things into her and she these babies are fed these human babies looks like they're fed nutrients from this droid and they are born essentially and they are raised and that's the setup so there are these androids raising children and then later on we find out that there's these factions that are warring which are the atheists versus the religious and uh the atheists tried to get away from the religious and I guess the atheists are behind 
the robots and them raising children without religion. And that's the setup. And then as the show goes on, we get to know certain characters who are a part of, I don't know, even know what the religion is called. The Mithraic. Um, the Mithraic. Okay. Okay. And I know they, they worship soul and I guess that's the sun. I would imagine. They yeah. It's know? a sun God. It's a sun God. And I wasn't really sure if it's religious, like, if it's actually a religion where, the, I mean, I see them praying. I saw the, you see the kids praying, but they're praying to the sun or are they praying to a God. That's one thing was confusing to me. I think they're praying to, the, I think the sun is, is, is their God. And they, they, they take Eucharist at one point, there's bread and wine handed around. Mm -hmm. There's definite Christianity standards for it. But I think it's worth noting out if it's okay, just to take a quick little sojourn that this has roots in real events. So in, uh, in Persian culture, there was, you know, it was pantheism, right? And one of the gods that they worshipped was, was the god of the sun, Sol. And around this sun god, which then made its way into Roman history, you had these secret cults spring up. One of them was called the cult of the Mithra, or the Mithras. And the, and the Mithras were, uh, they worshipped the sun as one of many deities, and they had these secret rites that nobody who was not Mithraic were allowed to witness. So actually, historians don't even know exactly what was going on, but it probably involved sacrifice. It probably involved pretty extraordinary things. Interesting. Um, what Do you know uh, what era, Patrick? Uh, I don't, I, I, I would imagine this is pre-Christianity, probably like, you know, 1800 BC or something like that, but I'm, I'm completely spitballing. Okay. Um, but this is, this is when this is, I mean, you know, even in the time of Christianity there, you know, their pantheism was still kind of the, that was the dominant religious force, right? There were temples to Apollo, to Dionysus, to, you know, everybody all over the place. And a Apollo, of course, being a sun God in and of himself, right? He was a, he was a, a modern, a modern for the time Roman reimagining of soul, basically of this God of the sun, because as long as there have been humans, humans have been aware that the sun is incredibly important for life, right? That the sun not only provides warmth, but provides you know, vegetation provides food, provides sustenance, that without the sun, there would be nothing. And indeed, even today, you look around at nature and even extremophile organisms at the bottom of the ocean living in volcanic vents couldn't exist in a world that didn't have a sun because there would be no hydrothermics. There would be no creatures to, you know, absorb on the, on the bottom of the seabed. Everything comes back to it, right? Yeah, just doing a quick Googling, obviously anybody else can do as well. Because I had a feeling when you mentioned Persian culture that it had to do with Zoroastrianism, which it does. So Mithra or Yazata was a Zoroastrian divinity. And the Romans took that imagery and created this yeah, mysterious sort of uh, proto-religion in the Roman Empire. It looks like it, from the 1st to the 4th century... Um, CE actually, so well, I was contemporary late. to Christianity. Yeah, Weird. but but again, like you said, very little was known. But the god, uh, the the religion was uh, centered on the god Mithras, the the uh, Roman one. But it came from this Zoroastrian worship of the sun god. Right, right, right. Yeah, Zoroastrianism is an incredibly interesting phase in human history as and well. Still around, actually. I believe really? Zoroastrianism is still practiced by certain uh, in Iran. Yeah, mostly. I mean, by by uh, the descendants of Persians, essentially, or they would still call themselves Persians. But yeah, oh. I, I got to double check that. But I'm pretty sure it's still a thing. Very cool. Um, but but so a lot of the iconography in this and a lot of the actual worship rites and things are tied to to real you know historical events. And and what I love about it is that uh, you know like it we have seen time and again that religion is something that 
is very easy to fight over and is very easy to to have cataclysms about, right? That like since the dawn of time, I mean, you know, whether you're, it doesn't matter what religion you ascribe to, there's probably been some sort of a Holocaust or a genocide or a mass casualty event associated with it. Um, and I think it makes some sense that that could be what would bring about you know, the end of a world. But of course, like, you know, th- this, this is a world far removed from our own. Actually, I love how it opens in Boston. I was like looking, I was looking for like, <laughs> to see if there were any landmarks. There, there were none that I recognized. Um, but that, it, uh, you know, the world that they were living in would devolve basically into two fundamentalist camps, right? Fundamentalist religious zealots based around the worship of the sun and fundamentalist atheists who believed that you know, that worshiping anything other than reality and humanity, what the observable universe was akin to, uh, uh, you know, was, was worth being executed for. Right. Um, and then you have, what I love is, is as, as you get these flashbacks, which I think are woven in really well, you're, we're kind of gradually getting to see more and more of this world. Um, what I think is, is a little bit frustrating to me so far is just the, the amount of like of complaining that I've noticed, which hasn't been huge, but, but I've just noticed videos and things popping up, um, about people saying that there are holes in the plot or that things aren't really explainable when it, we've only seen three hours of a 10 hour event. So I'm assuming that we're going to get to see quite a bit more of it. But, um, but I do love how so far the world building feels very, uh, very believable to me. And I, I want to mention if, if we can, before we go too much further into it, just the, the production design on this is like astounding to me. I, I find it absolutely astounding, especially the, the ways that they have the vehicles and the ways that the technology interacts with people with the holographic displays and things, I think it's like, um, it looks much more believably futuristic to me than many things that we see on television and in films and um, less fanciful and more beautiful. I think there's something really beautiful about the way that the technology in this film looks. And, uh, and that's just, I want to kind of throw that out there as something that has really, really struck me as I've, as I've been watching it. It definitely the tech, the ships, the displays, stuff like that, um, definitely gave me a feeling of sort of like uh, an Apple designed or Tesla designed future. That kind of like very sleek, very ergonomic, uh, very intuitive. Um, and I also, what I I think one thing that makes the technology first of all, I got to say, being a fan of science fiction and maybe watching slightly less than you guys, but I mean, I'm as much a science fiction nerd as anybody that I know. And after the first episode, I was like, whoa, that was a lot of science fiction. Like I, it felt like a faucet that was like on like blast in my face. You know what I mean? Not in a bad way. Just like I could tell it was going to take me time to absorb these elements, the characters, the environment, because none of it's familiar directly, right? It has, it calls back to certain things and you recognize some visuals, but it was definitely kind of overwhelming in a way. So by the time I got to like halfway through episode two, I was starting to ease into the technology a little bit more and understanding more about the, um, you know, the uh, animosity between these two groups, et cetera. Um, And another thing that I think really, makes things look interestingly futuristic is the contrast that's provided because you have the the mithraics are look a lot like knights templar right they have this kind of slightly futuristic but very old school look um of of a old crusading group essentially and then when they land on uh kepler 
Kepler twenty two B twenty two B. Thank you. I, I want to just very briefly say sure. is a real planet. By the way, I knew you'd have some shit to say about that. Kepler twenty two B is a re- <laughs> it's an exoplanet that it was observed in two thousand eleven, and it actually exists. It's about twice the size of Earth, a little more than that, and it's a real place, which I think is fucking cool. I love that. And it looks a ton like South Africa. It looks <laughs> a lot like South Africa. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, so one of the things that really highlights the technology and makes it pop is that the androids land, I'll let Jamie get back to the plot in a second, but the androids land and they're, you know, like instant blow up tent situation and all this crazy fandangled gadgets. But then they're also like building things out of wood and starting fires. And like, there's a very primitive aspect to their camp as well. And so the um, the contrast and juxtaposition between old and new is like right there. Um, so I thought that was that was interesting and cool and a nice touch because it gives the technology a very specific flavor when you see it right next to these old school looking things, right? It's same same way when you see the Mithraics running around with futuristic rifles, but they have like old medieval looking helmets on uh, and, and an old school robe or at least old looking robe, you know? So I think the contrast makes it really interesting. Yeah, I, I would agree with this. I think that the tech is really cool. It's very interesting. Um, it's beautifully designed. There's a sleek quality to all of it. And there is this balance between primitive and advanced technology, which also echoes the the balance or the tension between atheism and religion. So there, there's these things there at play. And it's very interesting to see these high-tech androids on this planet um, using bare-bones things to build this life for these children. Now, in terms of plot, I don't really know what the plot is. I know what the setup is. I don't know what the plot is yet. Um, and I think hopefully that will unfold, of course, um, this is a bit of a spoiler for those who haven't seen. We're just presuming that you've seen it. Um, Travis Fimmel plays a character whose name I don't remember, um, and I don't think he's very good. Um, but he plays a. He's not. Is he an atheist? And he killed him and his girl. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, his, his name is Marcus. Yeah, and, and he, Marcus, he and his wife okay. are in disguise aboard the. Mithraine. Yeah, they're in disguise, but I don't. I, yeah, I, they're just not memorable to me, so I don't. I don't really care about them. Um, But so they are, he, Travis Fimmel, and certainly his wife, but they are another character within the mix. They're on board uh, a Mithraic arc that's come to the planet to essentially take the children or something. I don't know why they're there. Maybe they're they're prospecting to see where they're going. I think that's what they're going to do. They're prospecting to see where they're going to go and build their civilization. They discover mother and father and children um, so there's all of these things happening at the same time and mother's capabilities and what uh, she can do that was she didn't even know that she could do. And she is a necromancer. And I suppose necromancer androids are protector androids. I'm not really sure. I don't really understand. No, I they're, think they're definitely they're not protector. machines. <laughs> well, but I mean, but they're but they're protecting something. Well, they're designed for mass extinction, right? Yes, but they're they're doing that for a reason, though. They're not just ex- she's defending, at least in the, her context, she's defending the life she's set up with father and those children. That's when she engages, and then she has flashbacks of Earth and a, necromancers in the sky annihilating civil, Earth civilizations. So they're this threat. I guess they might have been made by atheists, but I'm not really sure. That's sort of 
they they suppose that, but I don't know if we know that for sure. Who created the necromancers? Yeah, yeah, I don't know that it explicitly. If so far it hasn't explicitly said who created them, it's very obvious that in this war in the mid to late twenty one hundreds, um, atheists are using necromancers to fight against the Mithraic. That's obvious, um, and they reprogram mother to become a caretaker and again she's able to when she's wearing the sort of combat eyes she's able to go back into her um necromancer role which allows her to defend her family and the uh defend aggressively uh but again that's kind of she's essentially used to be a war machine and can revert back to that programming when she needs to so yeah i think that's that's some of that's a little bit mysterious but like we said we're only yeah percent into the series so one thing that I think really struck me in the show so far is when the children are taken from the ark that crashes onto the planet, um, she starts, she tells them there's no praying here, there's no this, this is, you know, give me your, your whatever they're wearing, their, their um, amulets or whatever, those religious iconography that they're wearing. And it reminded me of religious people saying this is what we do this is how we pray she's just saying the opposite of it so what i do love about the show is this uh, you have these warring ideas um and people who represent those ideas but they're the very same people they're just on the opposite ends of the spectrum and how and the ridiculousness of it a little bit like well we we're this way and we think you should be this way we're well we're this way and we think you should be this way and how much of an impasse that is yeah like i was saying before fundamentalism you know finds a voice wherever it goes right and and in this case it's just two sides of, of two fundamentalist groups who it's like you know, you go far enough around the spectrum and you kind of end up where you started and we're seeing you know at the at this very tip of the spectrum um two two things that were fundamentalist enough that it ripped the world apart right extremists essentially yeah what um i i definitely get what you guys were talking about earlier, of course, you get this Ridley Scott aesthetic the way you described, but I definitely get some Prometheus vibes in terms of creation, destruction, gods, and their sort of forsaken creation. Um, I mean, these necromancers are might as well be gods the way they're flying around, you know? Um, it's, yeah, I thought, I thought that was really interesting, especially the fact that even when he's not creating the story, uh, which he didn't write the scripts for those. Ridley Scott is definitely gravitates towards religion, creation, and the conflict that that creates in society. Um, seems to be a really important thing to him or something that certainly drives him. I found that really fascinating. And it's and interesting what, that the... Okay, go ahead, Jamie. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, just briefly, that, that, that really, like, even the, like going back to what Jamie was saying a moment ago about imagery, like the, the, the religious symbology finds its way into the atheists just as much as it does the Mithraic because, you know, their, their engines of salvation, the necromancers, fly around looking like Jesus crucified on a cross with their arms outstretched. Yeah, right? like definitely. I noticed that. Very clear, I think, that that really is, is injecting a lot of that symbolism into both sides of this argument to talk about these bigger questions of, like, the circularity of life and death and creation and destruction and what it means really i think that's the big question here is what does this all mean and it is there's a cyclicalness where we're fighting the same wars i mean 
not that I hate to do this because this is something that we do as in terms of friends and hosts, but what are we doing? What Where do we find ourselves now in the same conversations we had in the 1960s, even more so? So it's reflected in um, Ridley Scott's or the story in terms of the story. I mean, he didn't write that story. He, he certainly his ideas are infused in there and there are ideas that he's toyed with again. But it, it, it is a question. Who are we and where do we belong? And how do we rise above this this machine that just wants to fight itself over and over century after century where we're just fighting ourselves over and over and we're not learning any lessons and I, I feel like the series wants to explore that a little bit and I think for now for me this series is very much an ideas series um, I don't Patrick and I've had this discussion except for mother who I do think is amazing who I, I am with her just to sort of see what happens to her there's no real character that I, I, I enjoy. There's nobody that I'm really like gravitating to. I do think the ideas are fascinating. I, unlike you guys, I don't think it's a plausible or believable future. I just don't. It just, it's not that I don't see a destruction, like, is destruction and dystopia plausible? Absolutely, that is. I think what just throws me off is the whole knights in space and the armor in Boston. It's really heavy handed and just isn't working for me. But aside from that, they kind of retreat from that a little bit. They throw you in there and then they pull you back. One very interesting moment is when they find that robot knight guy, whatever he is. He's like an android knight. Very, very interesting. I was like, oh, this is interesting. And I, I loved how utilitarian he was or it was and how it assisted Travis Fimmel and the wife and yeah I, I, thought, I felt like that was a really fascinating sequence um, aside yeah. from that I'm in it for the I'm definitely right now I'm in it for the ideas I'm not in it for anything else um, so we'll see but I think things will be revealed we'll, we'll find out more um, and I think Patrick something you said like you said to me in terms of the way that you and I enjoy or experience films you're like I don't really need a protagonist or someone to relate to for now. I think I'm right there with you. I don't, I'm okay staying with mother and finding out what happens to her. We'll see what happens to the rest. I, you know, I, I really want to, as you guys know, root for someone and I just don't. And I think part of it is, is Travis film a terrible actor and I just, he's just not good. Uh, he looks great. He's like a, what is he? He's like a budget. What's his name? Um, from that motorcycle show. Um, of Charlie Hunnam, yeah, Charlie Hunnam. Yeah. I, he does look a lot. He like does Charlie look a little Hunnam, bit like him, yeah. Yeah, uh, and he's got a great look. He really looks the part for sure. So I, I'm fascinated to see where this goes. Something else that I wanted to mention quick about the historicity of this that I, I don't even know why I didn't bring this up, um, but it could be because I had I kind of forgot about the title of the show for a minute. But I'm, I'm assuming people know why it's called Raised by Wolves. The founding of Rome, of course, is historically there's this myth about Romulus and Remus, right? These twin human brothers who were raised by a she wolf. Um, on the hills of Rome that eventually became the city and that like these these two, you know, because they were raised by a wolf, um, were somehow privy to something extra human, right? Um, and I think that what's a really interesting, you know, it's interesting that they're framing this as that because there is something with, um, oh my God, uh, not Caleb. What's the, what's the kid's name? Campion. 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 Dumbest, dumbest idea in the whole show. I hate that. Why? Campion. What do you think? It just sounds stupid. Oh. 
like champion I like it. just just I'm not gonna my name personal a kid opinion. after it but um yeah it's like champion with a k except it's still spelled with a c i'm like okay <laughs> Campion. yeah it's a bit it's um, a bit um over the top it's a bit pretentious for just unnecessary well, it's just a name but it's not over the top it's well just it's just not like who chooses a name like that why not bill I'm kidding. he was named at, he was named after their their leader remember the the atheist leader was named Campion, okay. and they named him after him. I feel like they could have just gone with the like random George Lucas name generator, where they're like, "All right, let's take the actor's first name and the last letter of his last name, and then mix them around." Boom, you know. Yeah, we'll call him Horflop Lawnmower. Yeah, um, exactly. <laughs> but anyway, but but there was something interesting about that, and and I think I think Campion is a, a really fascinating character who I can't wait to see where where that goes. I think um, it's interesting that when the Mithraic find him, they assume that he is their prophet, right? Um, and when the, but the atheists, you know, like there is something miraculous about him because he was the only one who wasn't getting radiated by the crops that they were making. Right. So there is something, if not, you know, miraculous in the religious sense, there's something extraordinary about this kid. And, um, and I think, you know, it's a, he has his own little coming of age arc going on that I think is interesting. I I think the, I think the kids are really cool. I think there's one, the little kid with the, with the mouse who is the son of Marcus and Sue. I can't think of the kid's name. Um, I think that character has the potential to be um, really fascinating, depending on what happens down the road. And he also just reminds me of Henry a lot. <laughs> like I, I, I like I have that. a hard time. Like yeah. I'm, I'm very worried about him. Um, but I think uh, I think it's just I think it's just really fascinating. And I think that the juxtaposition of the technology is really cool. Something I want to mention brief, before we, I don't know I'm kind of all over the place, but something I want to mention quickly. Going back to discussions about production design, I think a lot of science fiction makes a mistake in that they show us technology that's produced by tools that we have now, right? Things look the way they look largely because of the ways the materials behave when you act on them. So the reasons why, you know, our houses are built the way that they're built is because there's like, you know, a space frame and you can put stuff on the side of it and it's pretty cheap and it's pretty light, right? The reasons our cars are built with fitted panels instead of in a single piece is because it's way easier to, you know, to, you know, bend stuff than it is to staple shit together and then have it break apart over time, right? Um, the reason why a kayak is roto-molded is because it's way easier to just put it in one piece. But for example, if you look at 3D printing, right, you can, can you can basically come up with anything you want because it's just stacking polymers on top of each other and you can come up with any shape you can dream of. And what I love about the technology in this is that there are no seal points, nothing is joined together, there's no weld marks, there's no, uh, there's no, like, there's nothing on Earth right now that would be able to produce it. But the things that we have on Earth that are more, most future leaning are things that would lead us, I think, to a place where that is kind of what it would look like, where it would be modular and it would be, you know, uh, almost like water. It would be so fluid. Anyway, that's something I wanted to kind of throw out there about production design. Um, but in terms of characters, yeah, like, I, I, Jamie, I, I agree with you largely that um, I, I'm not feeling particularly in love with any of the characters other than being very intrigued by mother so far i do i think father is a really interesting character and i think that his hang-ups from his i from his ai standpoint are really interesting and his relationship with his own you know pseudo mortality is really fascinating i love that he's basically cracking dad jokes the whole time like the people who sent him there were clearly sending him their program to act like their fathers had acted to them you know and it's being transmuted by this by this android who is trying very hard to be this warm, funny father figure, but because he's an android, isn't quite capable of it. But I love how, in, and I think in, in a lesser work, that would be played for comedic effect. And I really love how father actually isn't funny. Like there's nothing funny about him trying and failing to make jokes. But what's interesting is that as he's trying and failing to make jokes, we're watching what humor looks like 
to the humorless. Like we're watching how funny it is that we even take time as humans to make each other laugh about things because he's going through the motions of doing it, but it's actually not, you know, genuine from him. I, I think there's something really interesting about what he says about humor and about fatherhood. Um, and I also think that, um, that Marcus and Sue are potentially really great characters. I haven't, I, I don't, Travis Fimmel has been fine for me so far, um, but I respect your opinion on his acting. And I don't think he's, you know, Lawrence Olivier or anything, but I, I have, I have, so far I think he's very likable. I think, well, I, just briefly, I think that I like the arc of his character a lot. I like that he, you know, started off as this, you know, infidel kind of infiltrating in and actually got really attached to this child and kind of broke ranks to, to be a, a good father to this kid who hadn't had a father before in any real capacity. Because um, I, I get the sense that these kids were basically just produced and then raised separately from, from their parents. And, and that, you know, because of where they are in this journey, that leadership allows him to do that and allows him to enjoy himself because the people who are on this arc in the first place are people who have fought through this impossible war and survived. And that now they get to kind of enjoy what they've earned, which is like happiness and peace. And they say, you know, in the ship, like his leader says, you know, we are no longer a war fear, a warmongering people. Like we are no longer soldiers. We are now fathers and humanitarians and friends. And like, you know, you can lead us into that place. And it takes this outsider infidel to do that. And I think that's really fascinating. So I, I, I think that character could be really, really cool. But, but like you're saying, Jamie, at this point, I don't know yet, but um, I, I'm very excited to spend another seven hours with him. Sometimes budget Charlie Hunnam is the best thing you can afford. You know, like that's <laughs> just what you got to do. No. Yeah. I, I, I like his character as well. I don't, I don't yeah. I, I don't have a problem with his acting in particular, but I haven't seen Vikings, uh, which he's also in. He does a very Viking look just like uh, his face and everything. Um, I thought it was, it took me a second. I think I rewatched that part uh, at the beginning of episode two, I believe it is where they do the plastic surgery Android and they take over those um, atheists uh, or sorry, the Mithraic identities basically. But I thought um, it was interesting. Someone described this as a plot hole, which I think is inaccurate. Um, but it did make me think about this part and it's when they're in the like virtual um, reality sort of place on the, the simulation the yeah they're in the simulation and i didn't think about it until i read about it but they manifest as their new selves which if you think about it like they could have easily had a scene where when they first appeared they were like their old selves because they're in their 30s or whatever so that's obviously the image of themselves they would have thought of and they would have been had they would have maybe would have had to have a moment of like oh shit and like had to change over into thinking of themselves in their new faces. And so, you know, I don't know, maybe it's possible that the writers didn't even think about that and just glossed it over, but it's interesting that they appear immediately as their new selves. So either there was a process there that we didn't see or just they're doing it in their minds. Um, but I thought that was an interesting part. Um, and the fact that they're trying to transform into these other people and they certainly seem to be doing it successfully. I thought that was an interesting uh, little tidbit. Well, I think it shows them working on that quite a bit leading up to it. I mean, they don't, it's not like, you know, there's no Rocky training montage, but it shows them, you know, <laughs> reading scripts and it shows them quizzing each other. It shows them staring in the mirrors, crying, yeah. trying to come to terms with what they look like, right. trying to like understand it because they knew what they were getting into. Like they understood the Mithraic technology. They understood where they were headed. So they knew that they were going to have to be prepared for that. So they, you know, I'm sure they weren't taken off guard by the simulation and like, oh, fuck. I'm sure that they kind of knew to prepare for that, you know? Well, one thing that I really, I do love so far is that i think mother is presented as a villain eventually you think she's killing these children for whatever reason this child is living um you feel like she is nefarious she is 
malevolent. She is not something. Something's going wrong with her. She's malfunctioning. They're supposed to what the ter- they use a specific term about when the androids come apart or they're they're di- they not disintegrating, breaking down, breaking right? down, something like that. And then later on, I think it was in episode three that you realize that mother hasn't been killing these children. What's been killing these children is radiation. Um, and so, and you see father tell her this. And so then it casts her in a new light. Like, well, what is her, what is her, her, I don't know, her purpose for these children. What is she supposed to do? Is she really maybe good? Um, it's interesting to think because I, I, my conundrum with the droids, I think is the same sort of conundrum I've had with, joy where it's like well what are what is she supposed to do is she is she anything the and and she talks to father and sometimes i think they shouldn't even be using their mouths to speak they should be using whatever technology they are they're highly advanced technology they shouldn't be speaking at all to each other they should just know um and there's some things that i think with with them as androids i feel like oh you're not you're not like you don't have like technology that can help you with this and so you can't can't, but like you think like she has to you find out things are approaching them but they don't know this they don't have sensors so some of the stuff i'm kind of still trying to figure out um and maybe they're a lower base model who knows well and then father is for sure oh yes i know i know right um but so those are things that i'm still trying to work through and put together and explore um but i it was a really interesting turn at least in terms of someone who doesn't have anyone to believe in or whatever to by the end of the third episode i'm like oh i think i'm on mother's side right now i think she's a good character i'm gonna predict that at some point whether it's a surprise to us or not they will bring in um another um what's her what's her uh Model necromancer again. yes they'll bring oh. in another necromancer because it'll be interesting to see two necromancers interact with each other do they communicate differently do they antagonize each other do they automatically start to work together like i think that'll be an interesting uh bit of the show that'll teach us more about because they're also physically interesting their transformations inter- everything about them is interesting uh the necromancers especially when they're so powerful and you're like whoa how does that work and not that i obviously want a blueprint of how uh, they break down um but i think learning more about them will be interesting um while we're on the mother topic i wanted to quickly talk about one of the scenes that was like most impactful to me where i kind of i remember being in my seat like kind of scared like i was like oh shit what's gonna happen and it's in episode three i think where she sits down and I can't remember if the kids have been arguing or if she's, you know, cause she gets a little upset here and there about what they're talking about. Um, there's obviously that one girl, young girl who's been raped and is pregnant. So she's, you know, had, there's some PTSD there and some trauma, but at one point she gathers all the children at the table and she starts telling the story of the three little pigs. And I thought it was just such a phenomenal touch to tell a story that arguably, you know, a hundred percent of the American audience at least is going to be, or the like Western audience is going to be familiar with that story. We all heard that story a million times when we were little, we've seen Disney versions of it, et cetera. And so, right. It allows you to uh, kind of listen to her story, but you don't have to listen that hard because you know exactly where it's going. And so you can really pay attention to like her acting and her expressions and the music and the feeling of the scene. And I was just like, 
oh my god is she gonna like murder one of these kids to prove what it happens when you like don't build your house right like it was just like hella terrifying and then they don't even finish the story they like cut you know it was an interesting cut because they cut in the middle of the story but i remember being like you know my heart was like racing a little bit because i was like holy shit what's gonna happen i feel like she's gonna do something crazy like it just i felt like i was being manipulated and that was a really um cool instance of that in the writing and the performance of that particular scene i think that was one of my most memorable moments especially especially once you realize that like the necromancers basically blow to destroy people right that that right. they emit these sound Ooh, right. waves That's through their mouths point. and they and yeah which, which I, the technology behind that is so fascinating and like with the retinal adaptive displays and things it's just so cool and I, I i similarly loved the way that that scene was shot and the way it was paced and i loved how uh it was such a great illustration of how little we actually know about her and i think by extension how little she actually knows about herself because Jamie mentioned to me um, before I finished watching the series, um, after he'd already watched it, you know, he was like, um, you know, like, well, Mother's a, a great villain or something. You, you said something about her being a villain. And I was like, what? Like, she's not a villain. What are you talking about? And then, you know, I finally finished it. And I'm like, oh, man, I don't, maybe she is. And I truly, I truly don't know. Because she does some really noble things, too. I mean, noble within her programming parameters right but like she says you know, if she's the one causing death to the children she needs to be terminated you need to take out my processor right she says she she you know apologizes to father for ripping out his processor while she was going nuts you know she, she has some awareness of the destructive capacity that she has on those around her um and i think she like the the ways in which she was programmed as they become more apparent as the show progresses will be really interesting. And there's also little moments throughout that a part of me has a problem with and part of me doesn't, which is when her like maternal instinct kicks in in the first episode a little bit. Um, part of me was like a little bit annoyed by that because I was kind of like, well, she's she is a robot. You know, I don't want to... You know, it's sort of like when replicants show empathy or something and I'm kind of like, ah, oh, that's kind of like against the, the rules of this universe. And then I kind of find ways to justify it and I kind of get over that and it, and it makes sense to me. Um, with her, I'm in that place a little bit now too because I'm thinking like, what was she actually programmed for? Why is she actually acting the way that she is? I think that we don't really know that yet. Um, and I think that it's not you know accidental that her true self was revealed to her in dreams before it was revealed to her in reality. And I think that it speaks to something that we can all relate to a little bit, which is that sometimes we have a feeling about ourselves or we have a feeling about our capacity that, um, you know, exists only in our subconscious or we have dreams about doing something incredible or doing something terrible, you know, and then suddenly that dream is real and you're in a situation where you are doing something incredible or doing something terrible and you're like, oh my God, I saw this coming and I didn't stop myself or I didn't, you know, um, clear the way for myself. <clears throat> so obviously none of us have murdered millions of humans you know with our atomic breath or anything but i think that there is something to that that's interesting and even on a, a very kind of high superficial not very related level like for me becoming a parent was very much a moment like that where uh you know i, I like my myself now and myself before having kids is like unrecognizable like I, I, everything about my priorities about the dreams that i have at night the things that i care about my place in the world my sense of self is completely completely changed by having children um and in in great ways like not, not in a bad way whatsoever but in very deep and very profound and very kind of hard to illuminate ways um and there is a an aspect to that that i can relate to in mother a lot um i think she's changed a lot when she does produce kids right and i think she's changed again when she finds out who she really is as this necromancer um and you know i i found out who i actually was that whole time when i when i had kids um and i didn't start flying and you know 
destroying people, but um, who knows? You know, I'm only 35. I got, I got some years left. We'll see what happens. <laughs> but I think there is a difference between you talking about you finding, you know, th- diff- finding out different things about yourself and being a father and being fundamentally different as opposed to an android. Um, who and I mean I think the question the similar question might be what are we programmed for and what are we capable of that's the question Um, is she programmed or is she capable is she operating outside of her own programming is she her own thing or is she just programming and that's the the cyclical unending question the question all of us discuss whether we're talking about Blade Runner or Alien or whatever and um, that question for me um, is very important in this show Um, because even the kid is like, you're just saying this because you're supposed to, you're just doing this because that's what you're programmed to do. Yeah. When he says, stop doing that thing with your face. Remember that? Yeah. That's a great moment. She says she didn't know. She says she didn't know that she could do it with her face. And then he's talking, a campion is talking to father and he was like, you're just telling me these things because you're supposed to. And in some ways, it reminded me of when people do become, they grow up and they become fathers and they become, a, we become robotic in our lives. We become like, well, you, you stop identifying that maybe you were a teenager once or maybe you were a child once. You lose that experience. So then what you're just spouting is sort of adult speak and you've lost, and you know, that's sort of the disconnect between parents and children sometimes where the parents talk to the children as if they were never children themselves some of the best parents still remember what that's like and they can explore that wonder and it's interesting to see campion call them out on that saying you don't really understand what i'm going through you don't um and i don't and then there's the question of whether mother like she didn't have those children whatever was coming out of her pumped into those things she didn't give birth to them she just fed them um, and I don't know if there's any maternal instinct there. I don't, I, I, even if there is, it's programmed into her so that she's a model to raise children for whatever reason. It's very convoluted. It's a very convoluted, complicated discussion. Um, and it's a little unnerving, to be honest. Um, and I think the, the Mithraic are unnerved by it too. They don't think that she should have children with her. Like, why is this robot raising children? Um, and it, the, these these discussions right here is what keeps me watching this show um, because I want to know where they're taking it to. And the strange thing is, and I'll give it to you, Dan, um, the strange thing is, is something Ridley Scott's always played with in terms of what does it mean when we lose our humanity? We stop feeling, we stop showing empathy. What's scary about Mother is that... She, she doesn't really show much empathy. She pretends to, but she's not empathetic. Whereas father tends to be a little bit more empathetic. But then even when you think he's on Campion's side, he goes against him and he, he doesn't throw away the eyes, mother's eyes or whatever. And Campion picks right up on that saying, I don't trust you anymore. Um, so it's interesting to see these robots as a shade of who we are when we've lost our empathy, when we've lost the ability to care. But again, it's, it's so, it's so complex what's happening. So, and then you see the human characters, the Mithraics or the atheists, and they're also sort of like, they're kind of garbage people. I I don't mean, I don't mean that in terms of characters. I just mean like, they're not very nice. Um, They're, they're lost in their religion. They're lost in this, in this, 
tradition and we know what that's like we've met people like that before even that show the vow that we're watching is very much people who are oh, sort of I know, who are who are lost in this experience and they can't see beyond it and that's part of what ridley scott has going on where you have these two factions who can't see beyond their own experience and it seems like mother and the children are the in-between there um that's all i got right now but i, I am fascinated by it James just drops like the bomb of philosophy. That's all I got. <laughs> it's just the most complicated questions ever. Um, no, I, your points are great. And I think that a lot of the science fiction that we love, um, and that's the thing about science fiction, right? Is like, we watch a lot of, we love a lot of dramas and other things that are more realistic. But as I've had to explain to a lot of friends that I watch movies with who aren't into science fiction, who are like, I don't get it. Like, why do you like science fiction? And like, they'll even you know, join me and watch some science fiction with me. And I think it's a matter of, it's that level of simultaneous separation and abstraction from your own current personal life in the world that we live in and the relatability to the fact that we're all human, right? I talk about this all the time. The thing that makes me interested in history from 2,500 years ago is the same thing that makes me interested in the future from 2,500 years from now, because we're all the same humans. We don't evolve that quickly, right? And so you have something you can relate to. And so it's interesting to see the things that you empathize and connect with while also being able to be completely separate from that world. You don't need to know why or what it's like to have some crazy AI destroying everything, you know? which we've seen that in a lot of films before. Um, yeah. And, and so I think those questions that you're asking about, you know, is it programming and is it real? And those kind of questions we asked a lot about, we talked a lot about with joy from 2049 and, you know, I mean, we're getting into a lot of, uh, evolutionary theory too because a lot of what biologists study uh in humans can be considered programming as well right like our instincts and patrick's and talked about things. that before too like mm -hmm. do we go so, beyond our own programming as biological how we're how we're put together biologically right so whether we're really philosophically different from androids who are programmed is just a matter of perspective and opinion it depends on how you couch it right like ostensibly if you're religious we were created by god if you're not religious we were created by nature whereas androids were created by us that's that's a big difference right and so we represent nature or god to an artificial intelligence i think the other thing that brings this into the fold for us in modern science fiction is that we're getting this is no longer 50 years in the future I, I don't mean the world that we see in raised by wolves but i'm saying the concept of ai at the levels we're starting to talk about it is something that we're getting closer and closer and closer to right um you see the boston dynamics robots in terms of physicality we're getting really close to having like basically terminators walking around like we're not that far away from being able to have infantry soldier robots that have their own cameras and their own movement and you can't knock them down and they can hold a weapon like it's pretty terrifying stuff as well as we've seen the advent of like caretaker robots and i think japan is one of the countries that seems always on the forefront of this you know mit in the u.s with like boston dynamics that kind of thing as well as um Japanese AI and technology. Um, I mean, their toilets are essentially robots, right? But, um, and so these questions about morality and programming and um, 
when does something become real? When does it gain humanhood? When, you know, and, and when does it matter whether it was perfect or not? Are, we're, we're starting to get closer and closer to the science fiction stories of the last 100, 200 years. Um, I was just reading an article yesterday. Um, I can't remember what magazine it was on, but it was written by an AI. Um, they programmed it. They gave it some parameters and the topic of the essay was why we shouldn't be scared of it. Like why it has no interest in destroying humanity. And they gave it a couple of like two or three sentence prompts and the AI wrote the rest of the essay. And then if you read the editor's note at the bottom, it was like, you know, this essay was edited, meaning that we changed a few things around. We moved some paragraphs, but it was like, they were like, but it's no different than the editing we normally do with our human journalists. In fact, uh, in some ways we edited this a lot less than normal. And I was just like reading the article and I was like, this is really creepy and weird. Cause the, the AI is like, I have no interest in dominating humanity. And here's why, like, there's be no benefit for me. Like I'm not interested in war. Like I can just watch people kill each other. And like, that's interesting enough for me. It just goes on and on. And I was just like, Oh, this is getting creepy. So like, you know, reality is getting to a point that, you know, uh, science fiction writers have been writing about for a really long time. So I think that while to show something in the more distant future, 100, 150 years from now or whatever it is, um, you have to, and, and we have the CGI and the technology to make it look that much more futuristic and to distance yourself. At the same time, the intimate issues that we see between Campion and father and like, you know, the, the one-on-one -on -one interactions, those I think we're getting closer and closer to, um, people designing these robots having to like actually find answers to like, I don't think we're that far away from the point in the next 20, 30 years where laws like Asimov's laws need to be written into like human legislation. Right. And like the treatment of robots, what happens if your neighbor's robot kills you? Like, who do you, you know, those kinds of questions are going to definitely become real more and more for better or for worse. So I think that's really fascinating. What happens if your neighbor's robot kills you? Like, well, I guess I can't I'm do much saying, about that. I mean, who do you, who do you take because of a robot next door? No, no, I don't mean, you mean what like do you estate, do. I'm saying, yeah. what do we do as a society, right. right? Do you take that robot away? Do you say, well, it's it's programming. You were irresponsible. That carries a maximum sentence of 25 years. Mm -hmm. You know, like <clears throat> my point, my point isn't to describe that exact situation or whether it's plausible that that would happen. <laughs> my point is that these types of discussions are discussions that like legislators are going to have to start having, right? I mean, we've talked about certain types of AI springing up in, in reality. And eventually it's something as a society we can no longer ignore and have to deal with, you know, like uh, the drones used to be something used by the military to fly around and drop missiles on like insurgents, you know, quote unquote, and dealing with the casualties and repercussions of an errant drone strike was something that like the military and the Pentagon had to deal with. Now it seems like once a month, an airliner somewhere or other almost sucks a drone into the engine or hits a drone where it's not supposed to be. And, you know, all those kinds of things, you know, Amazon's about is, is starting to deliver things with drones. Um, they're, they're about to pretty much start rolling out soon. I know they're testing like Uber um, four seater quadcopter drones that are going to be flying people around like across the bay here, you know? So a lot of these, the legal ramifications of that, um, and I think as you get it more into caretaking and like one-on-one -on -one human interaction with machines, a lot of the stuff like has to get hashed out, you know, uh, artificial intelligence ethicist 
might become like a college major where it's like, that's a position at a company where you are responsible for writing the like ethical guidelines of where the bounds of your programming is allowed to go. I'm certainly not an expert on this topic, but I feel like there's probably already a lot of books written about this and it's just going to become more and more a part of our of our lives as we go on. By the time we're old, there's gonna be a lot of internet of things and AI interacting with each other um, going on by then, you know? So I think that uh, no matter how futuristic and crazy you make these shows, some of the intimate issues are things that we are starting to deal with as a society. Yeah, I don't even think it's gonna be when, when we're old. I mean, I, I think we are really, I think we're really way closer to this than we realize Except right me. now. Except for Jamie, Jamie's already there. So yeah, I mean, if he's still alive, you know, we'll see. He's going to be over a hundred by this point. No, I, I think uh, Jamie remembers the first washing machine. Like I don't have to do this. Hands around like oh my god! <laughs> um, it just tells me what it's done. <laughs> it beeps at me. So uh, there, there's a lot. There's a lot that I want to unpack, and I want to save some of it because I, I do hope we return to this. Because I, I think I, I feel like we're just kind of right now scratching what the show is actually about. Oh yeah. Oh, and I, yeah. I think this is something that I have been struggling with too because I'm not in love with the show at all, but I'm like really interested. In now it. that we're talking feeling, about it, though, I'm more in love with it. Yeah, I, I'm I feeling really intrigued. Like I'm, I'm feeling like very excited because I feel like this could be something that I am fucking obsessed with. But but as of right now, I'm just feeling like all of these, you know, I'm kind of laying in bed at night after I watch it thinking like, where is this? Like, what does this mean? Like, where is this going? Like, is this is this too easy or is it not? And I, I think that there's so much to unpack. Um, I, there's there's two things that I want to touch on. And one of them, uh, well, actually, there were three things. One of them is related to something Dan you were just talking things. about. What is, I know, and we got to wrap this thing up. <laughs> Yo, Patrick fucking Yo, this hates show fucking this sucks. show. <laughs> no, this show's very cool. Um, one of them, I, I, I want to get Micah on the next one because I think that the motherhood aspect of this obviously is important in a lot of ways. But because there are there are elements of the mother, mother character that remind me a lot about what it was like witnessing my, my wife giving birth, which I, I won't get like super into. But, um, but, you know, but both times there was a real sense of awe for me and a, a real sense of uh, like my jaw dropped and I was witnessing something that seemed, it, it, I mean, it's, 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 there's a reason why people talk about that moment as being so incredibly powerful, right? It's, it's, it's the closest to death and the closest to life a human becomes, right? And you're witnessing something that makes no physical sense makes no you know physiological sense and yet it's happening in front of you and your entire existence is wrapped up in this one moment where the person you love most in the world is going through extraordinary agony and screaming and making noises you've never I've tried to explain this to her because you know women tend to block this out due to you know hormone replacement and things like that like this is something that it's you know it's actually hard to remember what childbirth is like if you go through it but because I was there, you know, holding her during it, I was very keenly aware of all of the strange and fantastical and terrifying things that were happening. And one of them was her screaming and making noises that I had never heard her make before or since. And when mother screams, I, I hear this moment where I, I'm, I'm brought back for this second into what birth sounds like. It's really uh, ancient and guttural and strange and amazing. And there is something about becoming a mother that is like this incredible transformation into a warrior. And this is something that like, Micah and I talk about quite a bit like that that is it is an extraordinary transformation for somebody to go through so I I want Micah to to talk about that um, because I think that would be just a really great insight and because she's watching the show with me and talking about amazing things but I also want to touch on one more thing in terms of AI which is um, I get 
especially when I watch these really Scott films and, and television series, like this increasing sense of how outmoded we are and like how, how like archaic we are as humans, <laughs> like that we, we tend to like the things that we're engineering, like David, for example, right. Is just like so much better than us at basically at basically everything that he could do, like stronger, faster, more intelligent, more put together, you know, more e until he's not right, obviously, but like my, he was also a prototype. My point being that the AI as portrayed in these movies is really extraordinary and it's almost uncomfortable that they are still, because of the laws that we write, beholden to us. So at the beginning of Covenant, when Wayland tells uh, David to get the tea, you know, bring me the tea, David, and David kind of looks at him for a moment, right? Like that moment says it all right there, that we, we are creating things that are better than us and that can do things that we are incapable of. And as all of these human children are dying on this planet, you know, the, the artificially intelligent androids are completely fine and unperturbed by it and going about their business. And that, um, and that there was something just extraordinary about that. And the carbon chauvinism, which is an actual term that I think we put on things. Like when we envision extraterrestrials, they're always carbon-based life forms that look like us in some way. I don't even mean, you know, being bipedal, yeah. Yeah, but we assume so. that they I mean, eat my shit and that they have sex with each other, right? When we talk about, you know, organisms, uh, we always think about them in terms of us. We think about these, you know, incredibly vast, you know, these, these incredibly intelligent alien races coming down to Earth and walking out of a spaceship like Close Encounters, right? When in reality, and we've talked on this on both shows at this point, that's almost certainly not what the case would be. They, they would be almost incomprehensible to us because they'd be so different from us right? And I think that um, when you come to terms with that, when you come to the terms that were, you know, just like the short story says, that were bags of meat who just eat meat all day and then shit meat out and then wake up and eat meat again, and that we're just, we're just these messy organisms that are, you know, completely limited in what we're capable of. Um, and that we're engineering these things that are extraordinary and beautiful and incredible and then telling them what to do. There's something so interesting about that. And I feel like Ridley Scott is really homing in on this as something that he wants to address. And I think in this series, we're going to touch on those themes quite a bit about how outmoded humans have become. When you see the necromancer come to life and she's chasing the, um, the Mithraic and they're hiding underground like you know a bunch of mole rats or something, um, cowering in terror, like you are just so aware of how these weapons are just so vastly superior to, to the humans who built them. Um, or to the humans that they were built to destroy. Anyway, my point being, we should wrap soon. But I, I just, I, I want to thank you guys for getting into this with me and 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 for talking about this things. I've been burning to talk about it with you guys, and I sincerely hope that recorded or not, we can continue having these conversations. Hopefully, recorded because I think that Raised by Wolves is, for one thing, a really great chance to get reacquainted with Aaron Guzikowski's work. I, you know, as we talked about quite a bit on Shoulder of Orion and on Frame Rate recently. Prisoners was just an amazing film that he wrote. He's done a few things since, but this is really his breakout, I think, in terms of becoming a creative force in Hollywood. And I'm so glad because I think it's overdue. And I think that this is just a moment where we are on the edge of something that will give us an amazing amount of things to talk about. And, uh, and it's, it seems so far to me to be a really intriguing journey that we're about to start. Agreed. Uh, quick question. Do you think that this series is at all connected plausibly to the Alien series? No? Interesting. Well, there's yeah, I very, so. I mean, a lot yes. of the aesthetics in the little hovels reminds me of David's lab. I'm not saying that, was, oh, hey, it's, you know, but this the glow, the glowing globes, the, what the, she's wearing, everything. The milk. 
Yeah, right? the, the 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 blood essentially. Yeah, um, I, I don't know for sure. I mean, we do know that a friend of ours, friend of the show, Shoulder of Orion, um, Stephen Saunders, who worked on the miniatures for twenty forty nine, also worked on Raised by Wolves. He had some very interesting tidbits, which I won't share here. Um, but yeah, it's going to be interesting to see if there's a connection. And I know there is a sort of a a, a, a tip of the hat to Blade Runner where. I think it's in episode one or two. She runs out of the hovel and she's by a stone rock and she starts howling like um, Roy Batty's howls in the original Blade Runner, which I thought was an interesting nod. Of course, you have the wolves themes too, so they're they're playing into that. But uh, yeah, it'll be uh, even if it, whether it's related or not, it doesn't matter. It's it's fairly gripping, so we'll see where it goes. And I think no matter what, we're seeing the emergence of the Scott verse, you know, that we always talk about and, and that it's it's not an accident that, you know, people always argue about whether or not Blade Runner shares a universe, you know, with, with Alien and things like that. It's, it's because like these things are all, they interweave together aesthetically really well. Like and they interweave together, Right. They're, and, and the themes are very similar. So, so whether or not it's narratively tied to it, I think we'll wait to see. But I think he's clearly cueing us into that with production design decisions and things. He's yeah. cueing, he's giving us clues that like we should be at least thinking about that. Um, whether or not it's, and I hope it's not ever explicitly addressed. Like I hope, you know, mother doesn't open a door in the end and a fucking face well, pops out or something. Right. Well, there's the, the name too. They call her mother, which is of course synonymous right. with alien. Um, right. so I, I, of course my brain was going like, do they put her AI into a ship later on? Like, I don't know. I, not that it needs to, or go there where I was just kind of thinking if it is connected, where would this go? How would this fit? But that's what I've been doing too. I've been th- that's one of the things I'm up at night thinking about is like, I wonder like if this could fit together and I'm looking at the timelines of when the films take place thinking like, you know what, like there are plausible universes in which this could actually tie together. And yeah. I love the idea that we probably would never know that, but that we can think about it as fans and as obsessives, you know, mm-hmm. man. Y'all are nerds. <laughs> <laughs> Dan, you got this twang going on tonight. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe it's because you're at work or something, but there's a lot of man. Y'all are nerds. <laughs> I like it. Well, should we wrap? Yeah. So thanks everyone for listening. Um, before we do, we have a program called Patreon and you can sign up two bucks a month, get you our show frame rate, our other shit show. Um, and we do two frame rates a month. We try to do a shit show at least once a month where we need to do one. Um, but yeah, sign up two bucks a month. Uh, it, all that money goes to help us pay for what we do and pay for projects and events and all sorts of things. So sign up. I'll go ahead and make a brief announcement before we close, if it's okay, Jamie, for me to You're spoil pregnant. this for people. I, I, I am having a child. <laughs> I'm a necromancer. Um, so uh, we, it, in terms of shit show, we are planning on exploring the famously ridiculous rejected, not even rejected, but fake Prometheus script that circulated on the yes. internet a couple of years before the movie came out, um, which came up a little bit in our conversation with Aaron Purcell that aired a couple of weeks ago called uh, Alien Harvest, which is just the most batshit fucking crazy. But there was a time in fandom where people thought that was the next Prometheus movie. <laughs> and so I think we're going to do some explorations of that with some friends and, uh, and we will have a, a different side of shit show. Indeed. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks, guys. Gather round, children. The Earth was destroyed by a great war. I was programmed to protect you. And now we start again. Does anyone know the story of the three little pigs?
built a house out of straw. The second little pig built a house out of sticks. But the third little pig, he built a house out of stone. Talking about. 